0: 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. Now, just by way of introduction, some thoughts as we come to the book. Chapter number 1 and 2 kind of recount the effectiveness of Paul's ministry that he had previously had at the church at Thessalonica. And it seems that not every place that Paul went was so ready to embrace his message and so willing to respond appropriately to the gospel. He was often rejected, and we'll talk about that in just a little while. But Thessalonica did embrace it quite well, in fact. A a great number of people embraced the message. And it seems like during the time that Paul was there, his heart was uniquely knitted with this congregation. And so we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, and Paul, in these first two chapters, kind of recounts God's faithfulness and the people's reaction and response to the gospel message. Notice in verse number 1, the Bible says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we not need to speak anything. See what I mean? The gospel message had made a profound impact in this church, so much so that Paul did not need to advertise in the region surrounding it that something special had happened. That news had traveled fast enough. And by the way, if the gospel truly began to make an impact in your life, you wouldn't need to tell everybody about it. They'd take note of it already. He says, we don't even need to tell anybody. God has done a work in your church and in your life. For they themselves show, in verse number 9, of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, We were bold in God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Paul now is recounting his effective ministry there with the Thessalonian believers. And he's really essentially saying the gospel had its free course among you. And it seems like there was contention. They were idle followers, they were not in any way trying to pursue a relationship with God. And so when he gets there, there was contention. And he had to debate, and he had to argue, and he had to prove that the gospel was true. And now he says, our gospel was not hid from you. We preached unto you the gospel. We have been placed in trust with the gospel. And it has made a difference in your life. You know what I believe today? The gospel still, even in the year 2021, changes lives. And the, the news tonight will have a whole lot of headline stories. But they're missing the good news that can actually make a difference. And that is the gospel. In fact, the word gospel in our Bible comes from the Greek word evangelion, and it literally means good tidings. It is the good news. I still believe the good news is what our world needs to hear today. Someone once said, Bad news travels fast, good news takes the scenic route. That's so true. It seems like bad news is headed for our TVs, and headed for our phone screens, and headed for our newspapers faster than good news travels. But if you follow the course of the gospel, not only in the scriptural record, but also just in world history, it often seems that when the gospel is introduced to a place, there is a radical change, but shortly after, the good news begins to become the perverted news. Meaning, there becomes... A gospel that error is introduced to it. Or that it's misused or misapplied in a way, so that the gospel is no longer the true gospel, but it is a perverted gospel. My mind goes to the Galatian believers, who Paul said, Ye did run well, who hath hindered you? What got in your way? Because when I preached to you the gospel, ye received it, but now... It's just been abused and now you're running back to things like circumcision to find some effort in your flesh. It's a perverted gospel. The letter written to the Hebrews was to encourage those Hebrew believers not to go back to the old ways of Judaism, but to follow that Jesus is better and that the gospel is the good news of God. You see, all this is is to, to prove how that the gospel is the thing our world needs. The good news according to God is what our world needs. But certainly even today, the gospel as we know it is being perverted. In the late 1800s, a rise in what was termed the social gospel occurred. And it was basically the application of Christian charity to solve world economic and social problems around, uh, in, the, in the world. And so they would come to a topic like slavery. And they would try to apply Christian charity, loving your neighbor and loving God. And they would apply these principles in the scope of slavery... And then what they would do is they would try to fix the problems according to biblical practices and biblical ethics. And this became known as the social gospel. Even today, this is very much rampant in our theological circles. It's no longer the social gospel. It's now the social justice gospel. And there are left-wing theologians who are trying to fix all the problems of the world with Christian ethics and principles. Listen. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus was not to fix our world. The purpose of the gospel was to redeem your lost soul. Our world is broken beyond repair. Every civilization in human history, even from the one that Cain himself started, had issues, had problems. The gospel did not come to fix America's problems. It's a perversion. Now, today, we're trying to fix all sorts of things racial injustices, social injustices, economic inequality. And we try to do this under the guise of, well, we're Christian, and so we ought to love everybody. That is not the gospel of Jesus. There was another gospel that came to relevance in the 1980s, it's known as the prosperity gospel. It is that which promises that God wants you to live healthy, wealthy, and wise lives. And if you're living a life according to faith, and if you're living for God, you will experience nothing but prosperity. This came to prominence by men like Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts and other shysters who promised that God would bless if you would just buy their holy water. Or you would send money for their holy hanky. Friend, I don't have no need for a holy hanky. I want one completely filled in with cloth. Okay, I don't want a holy hanky. Get it? It's a play on the word holy. Get it? Alright. I didn't plan that joke out, but it wasn't near as good as I thought it would be when I said it. They do these things under a false premise. They are charlatans. They are shysters. They have taken what God gave and perverted it and twisted it for their own means. Friend, if your pastor owns a private jet, you need a new pastor. Or you should get some free rides. These are perversions of the gospel of Jesus. And it may seem like we're a long way from embracing things like the social gospel and the prosperity gospel. But my purpose in today's message is to establish for us, once and for all, what is the true gospel of Scripture? What is the gospel? Because here's what I believe. Here's the real problem at the core of the message. The problem is today, so many Christians go about trying to produce what only the gospel can produce. They are trying an effort in human will and human uh, determination to produce works and produce activities and produce ministries that only the gospel can organically produce. We need a true gospel. The real gospel according to the scriptural record. It does not have to do with fixing this world. And it does not have to do with you having a full wallet and a healthy uh, doctor's report. It has to do with Jesus. Amen. What is the true gospel? According to the Apostle Paul, the true gospel is comprised of three components. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So by the apostles' record, there are three components that comprise the gospel of Jesus. That is, the death, the burial, and His glorious resurrection. And so I want to extrapolate on these this morning. I want to introduce you to an atoning death. An atoning death. Jesus died A horrible and excruciating death on the cross at Calvary. But I will tell you right now, Jesus was not the only one to die that horrible and excruciating death. Even the biblical record that we have proves to us that it was not uncommon for multiple men to be hanging on crosses side by side with one another. There's a moment in history in 71 B.C., where uh, after uh, Spartacus' rebellion against Rome, literally 6,000 men in a single day were hung on a cross and crucified. Many men, tens of thousands, if not history produces, hundreds of thousands of men have died on a cross. So what makes Jesus' death on the cross significant? Number one, I think he, the difference is he was an innocent man. There were no doubt many men that died on a cross guilty for, con- for doing something wrong. The two malefactors on either side of Jesus recognized, we have done, we deserve this, we have done these things, we hang here justly. They knew that they were condemned, they knew that they were guilty, but Jesus was innocent. In fact, the Jews had followed Jesus throughout the course of His ministry, and Pharisees and Sadducees were frequent attendees to His best sermons. So when they put Jesus on trial, the high priest asked Jesus about His doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews also resort. And in secret have I uh, said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What have I said unto them? Behold, they know what I said. In other words, Jesus says, I don't have to testify to myself. The very men that are sitting here saying crucify him. The men that are saying here trying to set this whole coup up. They heard what I've said. They know my doctrine is not false. They know it's not untrue. Uh, you can ask them. So what did they do? when they could not for themselves set up false witness, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 26, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put Him to death. They weren't so concerned with justice. And they weren't concerned with finding the truth. They wanted their way. And they set up a false witness against Jesus. The Bible confirms this and says, First Peter says that Jesus did no sin, Neither was there any guile found in his mouth, meaning there was nothing deceptive about the manner of life that he lived. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. So while many men died on a horrible cross, many men did so at the condemnation of their own actions. Jesus did not. But I have to imagine that in all of history, maybe one other man was innocent Maybe one man was falsely accused. Maybe one man had somebody lie about him. Maybe somebody was wrongly convicted and he died on the cross. So what makes Jesus different? Well, not only was he an innocent man, but Jesus was an incarnate man. And here's the great differentiating factor between Jesus and all others that hung on the cross. It is that Jesus was not a man to begin with. Jesus was not flesh and became flesh. This is known as the incarnation. That God put on Himself the form of man and humbled Himself even to the death of the cross. If you will, just allow your mind to meditate on the wonder the absolute splendor that God would relinquish the right to His throne in glory and walk down the golden staircase of glory and step off there in the manger of Bethlehem and be laid in literally the, the crib that the animals would eat from. Can you imagine that He was wrapped not in kingly garments but in swaddling clothes foretelling the fact that He would be buried in the same... You want to remember how Jesus came not to be greeted by kings and the royalty of the world, but literally shepherds who were out tending the flocks met Him that night at His manger. Imagine that when God came to this world, He was rejected. No men loved Him. No men appreciated Him because all rejected Him. He was a man of sorrows. Imagine that God took on himself the great responsibility of becoming like you and me so that he might die for you and me. It was the disobedience of our father Adam that condemned us all. And as Adam represented the entire human race, we were all condemned by Adam's actions. But as Jesus chose to humble Himself and leave Heaven's throne and come to Bethlehem's manger, He became the new representative for us. And He lived the life that we could not live. And He died the death that we could not die so that we might have eternal life that we could never get. Jesus did all of this. He became incarnate. He became one of us so that He might intercede on behalf of us. There's a wonder in the atoning death. This was the agreed upon price that there would have to be death for disobedience. What did God tell Adam? In the day they eat of the fruit, thou shalt surely die. Disobedience to God's law demanded death. But when Jesus humbled Himself and hung on the cruel Roman cross that day, He took the death from us, and He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Friend, that is the greatest thought that Jesus came to die for, not the world, but for you. Some years ago, I took... The page in John chapter 3 and verse 16 and out to the side. You'll have to forgive me, I understand there's some ramifications here. But where the Bible says the world, I kind of scratched that out and wrote Andrew out beside that. Because this is not the book written to the world, this book was written to me. And when Jesus died, if I had been the only sinner in all of world history, He would have died the exact same cruel death redeem me and he would have died the same death to redeem you an atoning death I want you to see not only an atoning death which is the first aspect of the gospel there is an appropriate burial not only do you think of how amazing it is that God left heaven to come to earth but that he would die in on earth Frederick Nietzsche a German philosopher said these words, he said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. He spoke these words in reference to the Enlightenment age, where men took great advancements in science and art and, and these types of philosophy, uh, philosophies, and as man progressed, this a secular philosopher decided that men had intellectually ascended above the rudimentary need for religion. He said, we're so advanced, we have become our own gods. We have killed God, there is no need for Him anymore. Now I disagree with just about everything Friedrich Nietzsche said, but he is right in this, God did die. But He did not die because we made Him. He said, no man taketh my life, I lay it down to myself. God did die. And He died on the cross and He was buried. And Isaiah 53 is a passage that is entirely messianic in nature. Meaning that it's written about the anointed one of God who would come for us. And the Jews' idea of the Messiah was totally different than ours. And they come to Isaiah 53, and they really have no answers because it paints for them a picture totally contrary to what the Messiah should be in their minds. Verse number three of or verse number nine of Isaiah chapter 53, one of the conflicts they come to is this the Bible says, And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in His death. These Jewish scholars would have to come to this verse and they would have to try to figure out how the Messiah would die. But more than how He would die, how He would then be forced to be buried with rich and wicked men. This came to pass when all the disciples were fled away from Jesus the night of His crucifixion. All of them would be offended of Him. But yet there were two disciples, two secret disciples who came that night and pled and begged for the body of Jesus, one by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and the other by the name of Nicodemus. The same man we find interacting with Jesus in John chapter 3. You know what the Bible says about Joseph of Arimathea? He was a rich man. And they come and they beg for the body of Jesus and they take Him down and they anoint Him with spices and they place Him in Joseph's own grave. All of this to fulfill the Scripture that said Jesus the Messiah would be buried with the wicked and the rich in His death. But aren't you thankful it was a borrowed tomb? Aren't you thankful that he wouldn't need it long? Joseph wouldn't need to find a new place for his own burial. In fact, Jesus got to be part of the tomb that Jesus had already broken for a couple of days. Jesus didn't need that tomb for very long. Because not only is there an atoning death and an appropriate burial, there is, thirdly, an awesome resurrection. And it is this that gives the Christian faith, or, or Christian hope. It is this that designates and separates the Christian faith from all other faiths of the world. Because if you go today, you can find Buddha's tomb. If you go today, you can find Muhammad's tomb. If you go today, you can find Joseph Smith's tomb. But today, if you look real, real hard, you cannot find the tomb of Jesus. Because it is empty the grave was not needed any longer. In fact, as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching about Jesus and he's preaching how they have taken uh, wicked hands and they have slain the Messiah and the one that would come and he says though he was buried, it was not possible that he should be holden of it, meaning death. It was literally impossible for God to die for very long. He died of his own will and he rose again of his own power. Jesus, according According to the scriptures and by his own strength and might raised again on the third day. And it is this that separates the Christian faith. We do not serve a dead God. We do not serve an outdated God. We serve a God who is living today and sits on the throne in glory, alive forevermore. And this is an awesome resurrection. I read through the gospel record and I hear the, the statement of those two angels as they speak to the ladies that came to anoint the, tomb, the, the body of Jesus and they say, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He did exactly what He said He would do. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one to ever race from the dead. Jesus helped others raise from the dead. Uh, My mind goes to Lazarus. My mind goes to Jairus' daughter. But here's the difference. Lazarus did not predict it. Jairus was stressed and under great pressure because he did not predict what would happen. But Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He he knew He would raise again. He predicted it. And the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's the thing. Can Christian ethics and philosophies be applied to all manners of life situations? I hope so. I just got done teaching a Sunday school class about how we ought to be peacemakers. How we ought to introduce peace into all sorts of things in our life. When conflict comes, we ought to be Christian. We ought to be children of God. I believe Christian ethics proceed to every venue of life. The point is this, though the gospel is strictly the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its ramifications upon your manner of life. That's the gospel. Don't abuse it. Don't add anything to it. That's all it is. The work has been completed. Jesus said, it is finished. Nothing else needs to be done. This is the gospel. And Paul says about these believers here in Thessalonica, it worked. You received our gospel and, and your faith to us. Is spread Godward abroad, not only to Macedonia and Achaia, but literally everywhere. The gospel worked then, the gospel will work now. This morning, I want to speak to you just very briefly now. About the attributes of a gospel-centered ministry. And what our church seeks to do, and what we prioritize. How do we take this message and bring it to a lost and dying world? How can we, as a church, prepare ourselves to effectively do it? And I want to share with you, number one, a powerful delivery. Look in verse number five. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. That word is the, the, the Greek word logos. It literally means a speech, a dictation. Uh, And sometimes it's an utterance. This word, but it didn't just come in word, it came in power. And in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Our gospel must have a powerful delivery. It is not simply about getting the terminology right. You understand this. I mentioned to you this morning about the T.D. The Jakes and the Joel Osteens of the world perverting a gospel that they've made it another gospel, something that is not the gospel of Jesus, but frankly it's become the gospel of men and the gospel of preachers, but it's certainly not the gospel of Christ. And they take it and they pervert it. I'm not so concerned this morning that we're perverting the gospel. I think our gospel is accurate. I think our gospel is true. I think if we send out a a poll around the congregation, a vast majority of you this morning could detail now, especially following the introduction of the message, what the gospel is. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that God wants us to be wealthy. It's not that everything's always going to work out in this world. It is that Jesus died and rose again according to the Scriptures. So I think we're all in agreement on that. But Paul says... Our gospel was not only accurate words. It wasn't that we all agreed on what the gospel was. But our gospel came in power. And in the Holy Ghost. And you saw what manner of men we were among you. See, the problem is not that we disagree on the gospel. The problem is, it is devoid of the power of God. Our terminology is right, but our enabling is wrong. See, God told, Jesus told His disciples, tarry ye here in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He says, guys, don't even go to work yet until you get power. I know you know the words, you've got the systematic theology down. It's not about having the right words, it's about having the right power. Here's a question. When we speak the gospel to our friends, our family, our relatives, our neighbors, do we do so just because the... The words are right. We know what to say. We've got our five-point plan and everything's figured out. Or are we genuinely doing it in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God? Jesus said to His disciples that they would be witnesses unto Him in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria. You're going to change the world, guys. But it would not come until the Holy Spirit empowered them We all probably agree on what the gospel is. The difference is we're not daily returning to the supply of power that gives us the strength to proclaim it. When, Paul, when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin council in Acts chapter 4, they took note that they had been with Jesus because of simply the boldness with which they spake. They took note that they were probably unlearned and ignorant men. You know what that tells me? Their wording may not have been super awesome. They might have messed up on a few these and thous, but at the end of the day, they noticed they had been with Christ because their boldness spoke loudly of it. If we are not with Christ, if we are not constantly going back to the place of power, we cannot preach a gospel of power. We'll have the words right, we'll know all the right terminology but it will lack the power of God. You say, what do you mean by this, Brother Andrew? I I mean to say that this is not an eloquent gospel, but a powerful gospel. The number one one reason people do not witness today is because they don't feel qualified. I don't understand it enough. I'm afraid that I'll lead somebody down the wrong path. You know what? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. When people listened to Paul, they weren't like, wow, he is a brilliant orator. Look at him, he's got the alliteration, he's got it all down. Wow, what a powerful orator. No, he says, I came, I, I didn't. it wasn't in wisdom. I didn't have enticing words. I wasn't trying to allure you with catchy phrases or illustrations. He says this, But when I came, it was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What we need today, Christian, we need to begin to pray that God would give us power. Because for many of us, we've been saved 30 years, there's no confusion on the wording. There's no confusion on the five-point plan. There's no confusion that Jesus died, that, that God loves us, that there's a penalty for sin, and that we need to ask and receive Him into our heart. There's no confusion on those things. The problem is we are absent the power of God in our evangelism. And a powerless gospel is a gospel that makes no change. It has no impact. Like the bulldozer sitting over in the woods without key, without fuel... All the power potential in the world. Yet it makes no difference. Because there's no power. Our gospel must be a powerful delivery. I want you to see secondly a persistent dedication. Verse number 1 of chapter 2. For yourselves brethren know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before. Listen. And we're shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you in the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of cleanness, nor in guile. But we, as we were allowed of God, to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth the hearts. What he's talking about in verse number 2 is the evangelistic journey to Philippi, and to Thessalonica, followed the Macedonian call. They were looking for direction as to where to go, and God gave them a clear indication that Macedonia was the place that the gospel should go next. They arrive in Macedonia, and the first place they come to is Philippi. It is a major metropolis city of that area. They come there, and there's no real formal uh, synagogue, the Bible actually tells us there's a group of women meeting down by the riverside who were Jewish, and they meet there a, a lady by the name of Deborah. Uh, 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 not Deborah. That's a uh, help me, Dad. Lydia. Lydia. She's a seller of purple. I don't know why she's Deborah's a judge. I I, I got away from that. They meet there, Lydia. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. I'll you know we wrote this sermon together. Amen. Uh, <laughs> amen. Yeah. And they meet there Lydia. She's a seller of purple from Thyatira. She is a worshiper of God, but she, she gets saved that day and she gets baptized. And the gospel begins to have some effect there in Philippi. They then meet a damsel possessed with a spirit of divination. And they cast out this spirit and it it, it causes uh, income loss to her bosses. They don't like it very much. They bring them before the judges. And the Bible says that there in Philippi, they are beaten, they are imprisoned, and they are kept there as a way to punish them for preaching the gospel and for casting out the spirit of divination. Now, let me ask you, if you faced what they faced in Philippi, how anxious would you be to go do that in, the, in some other place? Yesterday, Brother Charlie and I knocked a door. And uh, uh, we were, we're knocking a street. We knocked a door. This guy came to the door. I reached out the track. I said, Hi, sir. My name's Andrew from Joshua. He said, Shh. I love being shh, don't you? I thought I left that in junior high. But, you know, I, nonetheless... He said, my daughter is sleeping in this room right here. And you woke her up. And I didn't really know what to say. And he said, I'm not trying to be rude. But I need to go put her back down to sleep. As Brother Charlie and I were walking away from the door, I said, Brother Charlie, if that guy wasn't trying to be rude, I think he missed the mark. Oh, but my friend, what rejection that was. That I knocked on someone's door and they turned me away. It is because of this I can identify with what Paul and his travel compatriots went through. As, a, as they were beaten and imprisoned because they preached the gospel. And he now says to the church at Thessalonica, you know how we came to Philippi and we were shamefully entreated there. We had to leave because we were run out of town. But when we got there, we spake boldly unto you. You know, it's not the people that slam the door in your face that make you really excited to go to the next door. And yet this was a dedicated approach to preaching the gospel. People will reject it. People will will even vilify and condemn us. They will write city ordinance against us that won't allow us to knock on their door. And guess what? We're going to keep knocking on doors. We're going to keep telling people about the gospel because the gospel is what changes lives. And the gospel is the hope of our country. And the gospel is the hope of the lost and dying soul. The gospel is what matters. So my friend, I'm not going to let a little bit of adversity and a little bit of opposition shut us down. It's not going to silence the message because it's the gospel that saves the lost souls of men. We must be persistent in our dedication to it though. We've got to keep telling because people continue to die. We've got to continue to give out the message of hope and salvation because people are dying lost and on their way to hell. Not only a powerful delivery and a persistent dedication, but thirdly, a patient discipleship. Skip down to verse number 7. We didn't read this in our opening text, but it's certainly part of the passage. Paul now describes the way he ministered there in Thessalonica. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse nurse cherisheth her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Paul uses the analogy of a mother who, gives, who nurses her child. And in this we find a beautiful picture of the way discipleship should occur. It is a mother who literally gives her life to her child. As the child nurses, she is giving her strength and her nutrients and her own life... To that child. And that's what he later describes. He says, We weren't just willing to give you the gospel. We wanted to impart our souls to you. Uh, He describes it to the church at Corinth. He says, We were willing to be spent, uh, we were willing to spend and be spent for you. What are we willing to give up so that someone might hear the gospel message? Are we willing to watch them fail and help them back up? Are we willing to watch them come in with all the pains and all the effects of the world? All the effects that sin causes on the sin-sick soul. Are we willing to embrace them into our congregation? And accept them scars and all. And are we willing like a nurse to bandage those wounds. And to teach them what the gospel is. And that the gospel accepts all. But the gospel changes all. Are we willing to wrap them up in the message of the gospel. And teach them what it is to walk after Christ. And be followers of me even as I am of Christ. Ne you know what manner of men we were among you. We should commit the message that we've learned to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This is the pattern of biblical discipleship. It's not that only we concerned about sinners, but that we would give the message of the gospel to sinners and watch them grow up and mature in that gospel. We cannot be a church that gets excited about their salvation and then leaves them in the ditch waiting for the world to come take them away. Are we willing to commit... To giving ourselves to discipleship, to teaching people what this book says, not according to Google. You know what I've learned about Google? They got 27 pages of search results and not one of them agrees with another. Are we willing to teach people, according to the Bible, what the gospel message has for them and how it can change and transform their life? This is not easy. You know what else is not easy? Raising children, caring for an infant, and that is the precise picture that, that that this passage uses as a nurse cherisheth her child. Are we willing to work like that? It is my goal as pastor of this church to lead our church into passionate, powerful delivery of the gospel message. And a persistent dedication so that we will not be uh, uh, discouraged that the first time someone says, you know what, you're not welcome on my front porch. And we must patiently disciple believers so that they don't just meet Christ, but they get to learn Christ. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? Today in our American church culture, what we face is people that when asked that question, they want a church with a a uh, 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 a groovy pastor. I'm so groovy, I use the word groovy. <laughs> they want a, a relatable pastor. They want somebody who speaks to where they are. They want a church that makes them feel comfortable the way that they are. They want a church with a, a good kids ministry. They want a church with a youth department that the kids enjoy going to. And yet over and over and over again, we could ask this question to a hundred different people about what they want in the church, and not one of them would say, I want to be a part of a church that is a gospel-centered ministry. We're concerned about playgrounds and nurseries. We're concerned about instruments on the platform. We're concerned about whether we sing Hillsong or not. We ought to be concerned... About the gospel. Because it's the gospel of Christ that changes souls. There ain't never yet been a song that converted somebody. There ain't never yet been a song that died for somebody. There ain't never yet been a song that transforms a life. Because only Jesus and His gospel can do that truly. I want to be a part of a church that is gospel-centered. And I want to be a part of that gospel-centered approach to my community.